Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock Sunday worship sermon. I'm Pastor Stephen of Calvary Baptist Church here in Phillipsburg, Kansas. Uh, our text study this morning is Acts chapter 26, verses 4 through 29. Uh, Paul gives his testimony before King Agrippa. Last week, we covered a basic introduction of Paul's appearance before Agrippa. Uh, chapter 26 is probably my favorite chapter in Acts, and every time I read it, I come away encouraged by Paul's boldness in preaching the gospel in front of a man, rather, preaching the gospel to a man who has the authority to execute him. Agrippa isn't the high priest. He's not a group of Jews setting an ambush. Uh, those men pale in comparison to Agrippa's authority. And Paul, he runs the risk of being put to death because, as we'll see, Agrippa has zero concern for the Christian faith. And so as Paul preaches the gospel, calls a sinner to repentance, we know the experience of what happens when we call sinners to repentance. Majority of those sinners become angry. Some of them become violent. And so Paul runs the risk of upsetting a man who has authority to kill him. Notice in the text that Bernice is also with Agrippa. Bernice is his wife and his sister. Do you remember Herod who had John the Baptist executed in the Gospels? That Herod is the father of this Agrippa. Bernice is that Herod's daughter. This Agrippa's sister and lover. I misspoke. I, I said wife. We don't know from the text if she's his wife. But we know that she's his sister. Drusilla, back in Acts chapter 24, remember the governor Felix, Drusilla, his wife? Drusilla is the sister of Agrippa and Bernice. So Agrippa, Bernice, and Drusilla, who we meet in Acts chapters 24 through 26, they're all siblings. They're all the offspring of Herod and his mistress, Herodias, who was married to Herod's brother. So Agrippa is romantically involved with Bernice's sister. Incest wasn't anything new for Bernice before she was in a relationship with her brother. She was married to her uncle. The theme over the last several weeks as we discussed Paul's trials, remember the theme is he's appearing before wicked men. None of these men that Paul has to give an account of his life and ministry to are righteous. 
And it's similar to Jesus. In the Gospels, when Jesus appeared before Pilate, Herod, um, the Jews, Caiaphas, they're all wicked men. Jesus submitted himself to wicked men. Well, what's the big deal about that? Guys, it weighs on the soul. It's heavy. It's a great burden. I mean, I, I'm a sinner. And when I submit to wicked men, I, I feel that burden. You know, it's, it's a burden. It's a heavy weight for me to submit to presidents because they're wicked men. It's, it's a burden for me. It's stressful. It's anxiety to have to submit to wicked men knowing that they are unrighteous. And I have to show them honor. But it is a godly attribute for the righteous to submit to the unrighteous, to, for the righteous to suffer from the hands of of the unrighteous. It is a godly attribute. Godliness is submission. Godliness is not complaining while submitting. Here's a question for you. Since Agrippa isn't a Christian, why does Paul compliment his familiarity with the Jewish practice? Paul says in verses two and three, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Since Agrippa wasn't a believer and he didn't practice Judaism, how did he become familiar with the customs of the Jews? Because he was the king of Judea. and that would make him the king of the Jews. Roman historians uh, wrote extensively about the Herodian dynasty. Uh, Grippa is a part of the Herodian dynasty. Um, there's plenty of information that you can get off online about the Herodian family. There's a lot of information about the Herodian family in scripture. The kings according to scripture, were very ruthless. Uh, Herod the Great, which is the grandfather of this Agrippa, murdered thousands of infant Jews in order to exterminate the Christ. Uh, Herod Agrippa I, this Agrippa's father, like we mentioned earlier, um, had an affair with his own brother's wife. And when John the Baptist uh, opposed him, he, he placed him in prison. He had John the Baptist arrested. When Herodias's daughter, for all we know, it, it could have been Bernice. It could have been Drusilla. When she danced seductively before Herod, 
it pleased him. And he asked the, the young girl and, his, and her mother, what would you like for me to do for you? And she said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he submitted to that. The Herodian dynasty, the Herodian family were ruthless killers. They executed all threats to the throne. I mean, they would eliminate anyone, uncles, fathers, grandfathers, cousins, brothers, anyone who posed a threat to the throne, anyone who they believe would get in the way usurped out of power from them. They would have them killed. The Herodian family were also known as uh, master builders and organizers and developers. They were very wealthy. Uh, in order to endure themselves to the Jews, uh, the Herodian family made a great contribution to the renovation of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. That temple in the Gospels, that the disciples um, you know, fawn over and say, look how beautiful it is. Most of that work was paid for by Herod. He increased Israel's wealth. He increased their economy through commerce and trade. They built many seaports. And if you had a seaport, that meant you could import and export goods. Something interesting that I found out about Agrippa is that he was impressed with the priesthood. Uh, he would often watch them work throughout the day. He was enamored with how they dressed, uh, the stones, the beauty of the garments, the ephod, uh, the headband, the gowns. Um, he loved the, uh, the costly material uh, that was in the temple and that each synagogue had. He loved the veil. Uh, he loved that the items were made out of gold. Agrippa was so intrigued by the priest and their work that he often built dwelling places next to the synagogues so that he can just watch them do their daily assignments. The Jews hated it because they thought Agrippa was spying on them. But that wasn't the case. He was genuinely uh, intrigued, according to Roman historians. He appreciated the meticulous work of the priest. He loved how their daily routine was very honorable. And the priest, I mean, they did have meticulous work. They were very careful in what they did so as to not offend God. They were careful in what they wore. They were careful how they offered incense at the exact times of every day. Uh, they were careful to replace the old leaven with new leaven. Each step, each movement was carefully planned so that they would not offend God because they believed that God was watching their every step. So Agrippa's reputation of taking interest in the customs of the Jews was well known. Even Paul knew that. And Paul was grateful that someone who had knowledge of Judaism was willing to hear him out.
And Paul uses it to his advantage. Uh, In his defense, he emphasizes his Jewish heritage. And the Jews who have made the accusations against Paul, they, they can't object to what Paul is saying about his Jewish heritage because they're familiar with his former life. They knew that he was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, which was a Roman city. They knew that he spent most of his life in Jerusalem studying under Gamaliel. They knew that Paul's parents would have sent him from Tarsus to Jerusalem at an early age in order to be trained as a Pharisee. Paul was probably around 12 years of age when he left home and he never returned to his parents. So for the first 12 years of his life, Paul lived in a Roman city. He receives a Roman education. And then around the year uh, age 12 or so, he is sent to Jerusalem to study more intimately the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion. And he does so as a disciple, as a Pharisee. When you take Paul's life and you try to compare it to anyone in, in, in Jewish history, his life is really comparable to Moses's. According to scripture, Moses was born to Jewish parents. His father's name was Amram and his mother's name was Jochebed. Three months after his birth, Moses was placed in an ark and he was sent up the riverbank. While Pharaoh's daughter and her maidservants were bathing in a river, they noticed the ark and they took the child and raised him as an Egyptian. But here's a twist to the story. According to the book of Exodus, Pharaoh's daughter hired a Hebrew woman to nurse Moses and to train the child. And who was the Hebrew woman that was selected by Pharaoh's daughter? She was Moses's actual mother. So Moses is trained up in both the custom of the Egyptians and of the Hebrews. Very similar to the Apostle Paul. In verse 6, Paul introduces the charge that he is guilty of. Remember, the Jews have accused him of several charges. Charge number one, they accused him of defiling a temple. False charge. Charge number two, they accused him of preaching against the law of Moses. False charge. Charge number three, they accused him of planning an insurrection against Rome. False charge. But the fourth charge, They accused him of preaching that Jesus resurrected from the dead. This is the one that's actually true. Paul is guilty of preaching the resurrection of the dead, and in particular of Christ's resurrection. But here's the hypocrisy of the Jews that Paul points out. They accuse Paul of preaching against the law of Moses. But that doesn't make sense if they also accuse him of preaching for the resurrection of the dead. Both those accusations cannot be true at the same time. Look at Acts 26, verse 6. Paul says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. 
as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused of by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you? Meaning Agrippa, the Jews, those in attendance, the high priest, anyone who's there. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why, why do you think that Jesus hasn't resurrected from the dead when the proof is in the scripture that God raises people from the dead, including the Messiah? So when the Jews accuse Moses, I'm sorry, when the Jews accuse Paul of preaching against the law of Moses, they're referring to everything that Moses wrote. They're not just referring to the Ten Commandments. They're referring to everything in the book of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And Paul says, how, how can you accuse me of preaching against what Moses wrote and also accuse me of preaching for a resurrection of the dead when Moses wrote about the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, if I'm preaching against Moses, I wouldn't be preaching for a resurrection. And on the other hand, if the Jews believed everything Moses wrote, they wouldn't object to the resurrection of the dead. They wouldn't think Paul's preaching of Jesus's resurrection was impossible. You see how that's hypocrisy? Moses wrote about the resurrection. But where? Where, where did Moses write about the resurrection? In Exodus chapter three, in verses four through six. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, what does that have to do with the resurrection? In fact, it doesn't, right? There's nothing, no mention about the resurrection here. The reason why this passage has to do with the resurrection is because Jesus says it does. In Mark chapter 12, when Jesus is approached by the Sadducees, they ask him a question about the resurrection. And Jesus quotes this verse in Exodus chapter 3, that God is the God of the living and not the dead. So according to Jesus, when Moses wrote that God said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, when Moses wrote that, according to Jesus, Moses meant that God is saying, I'm the God of the living, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses knew that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were once alive on earth. Moses knew that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were truly humans. They walked, they talked, but he also knew that they died. I mean, he wrote about their deaths. He wrote about their burials in Genesis. But by calling God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus says Moses is affirming 
in a resurrection. That Moses believes that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, although they were actually dead. So when Paul preaches for a resurrection, he is aligning himself with Moses. The Jews, on the other hand, when they deny the resurrection, they are opposing Moses. But not only are the Jews opposing Moses by rejecting the resurrection, they're also opposing the fathers. Uh, Paul says, uh, again, in Acts chapter 26, uh, verse number six, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, who were the Jewish fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Paul says they also believed in a resurrection. Okay, where does the Bible say that Abraham believed that God could raise the dead? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So not only did Moses believe in a resurrection, but even the Jewish fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believed in a resurrection. And there's more. According to Paul, even their descendants believed in a resurrection. Again, back to Acts chapter 26, verse 6. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. All of Israel believed in a resurrection. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, in having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. According to scripture, God made promises to the Israelites. One of those promises was a home, a land to possess. The physical land of Canaan was a type of that land. But it wasn't the actual land that they would possess. The real land of promise for the people of God is heaven. And notice that the scripture calls those who are waiting to go to heaven exiles as they live here. This is not our future home. This is just in passing. Our future home is in a different land. So if the Jews believed 
that this earthly place, the people of God believed that this earthly place was not their real home. How do you think they believed they would get to their real home? By spacecraft? Do you think that God would make some kind of time portal for them? No. They believed that they would leave this earth by resurrecting from it. They all knew they were going to die. But they also knew that they wouldn't stay dead. And because they knew God would do this for them, that he is the God of the living, that his promise to them was that they would live with him forever. The scripture says they worshiped him night and day. And Paul says, this is the reason why I'm standing before you, Agrippa, because I preach that Jesus resurrected from the dead. They deny it. But does Paul have a case for the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, to resurrect from the dead? And he does. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 9, David says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Okay, what does this have to do with the Christ? Well, in Acts chapter two, when Peter is preaching, he uses this passage from Psalm 16 to prove that Jesus resurrected from the dead. According to Peter, when David wrote Psalm 16, he ultimately had in mind the Messiah. That Israel's Messiah would not stay dead, that he would not see corruption. And because Israel's Messiah will not see corruption, David will not be abandoned by God after his death. Later on in book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, Paul uses this same passage in Psalm 16 to prove that Jesus resurrected from the dead. What about Jonah chapter 1 verse 17? And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, what does this have to do with Jesus's resurrection? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus applies this passage of Jonah to himself. He says, just like Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, the son of man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And what happened to Jonah on that third night? The fish spit him up. What happened to Jesus? The earth gave him up. In a figurative sense, Jonah resurrected from the dead. In a literal sense, Jesus resurrected from the dead. And the resurrecting of Jonah was a foreshadow of Jesus' resurrection. 
Not only did the people of God in the Old Testament believe in a resurrection, they also believed in the Messiah's resurrection, and they also believed that their resurrection was only possible through the Messiah's resurrection. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Whose days will be prolonged after their death? Of the Christ, his offspring. The only hope of Christ's offspring have. The only hope that the offspring of Christ, the people of God have of prolonged life is if the Christ, the Messiah, raises from the dead. That's the only hope they have of a prolonged life. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Guys, the only way to have to receive a divided portion or to have a part of the spoils is if you're alive. That's it. You can't receive your portion, your part of the spoil, if you're not alive to receive it. And the only way for you to live in order to receive that portion to receive that part of your spoils is if you resurrect from the dead. Jesus' resurrection accomplishes many things for us. Not the least, though, is that he gives us a reward. He gives us a spoil. We, we have a, a divided part of the portion. And what is that portion? It's eternal life. We have that as our spoil. And we obtain it literally when we resurrect from the dead. So Paul to Agrippa and to the Jews who are in attendance, how can I preach for a resurrection of Christ, but at the same time be accused of preaching against Moses. It doesn't make sense. If I preach for the resurrection of Christ, I have to be preaching for the teaching of Moses. Because Moses, the law, the prophets, they all spoke of Christ's resurrection. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead and the apostles began to preach that resurrection in and around Jerusalem, into the land of the Gentiles, that news of his resurrection should have been received by the Jews as the single greatest hope that they had. It is the goal of their worship to live with God, to leave this world and to finally be in the presence of God, to worship him truly night and day, not under shadows, but have the real substance to be able to look upon God and to worship him in his literal presence, seeing the angels joining in with them to worship God. When Paul preached 
that Jesus, the Messiah, has resurrected from the dead and has ascended into heaven where he sits waiting for his people to come to him. That should have been the greatest preaching that the Jews have ever heard. But it's a crime. Paul asked them, why, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Don't you believe in the Old Testament? Don't you believe the words of our fathers, of Moses and of the 12 tribes? Don't you believe in the words of the prophets? You may profess with your mouth that you believe, that you believe in God, that you believe in Moses, that you believe in the prophets, but you deny them by your works. Paul continues his testimony. He describes the years that he spent persecuting the church. After that, Paul reveals his salvation experience to Agrippa. He talks about the road to Damascus. Uh, and Agrippa hasn't objected to any of this. He hasn't interrupted. He has remained patient. He has allowed the prisoner to speak. Paul continues. He describes for Agrippa his calling as an apostle. He says, after I saw Jesus on the road and I was baptized, I was given the command to preach Christ among the Jews and Gentiles. In verse 20, Paul says, I was not disobedient to Christ, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance which we can see why that's offensive to his countrymen. They don't perform deeds that correspond to repentance and faith because they don't have faith. They haven't repented of their sins. But according to Paul, true saving faith is accompanied by good works. True and saving faith is accompanied by by good fruit. Every single person who makes a profession of faith in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ should be baptized. That is the model that Jesus gives his disciples right before he ascends into heaven. He tells them to preach the gospel, baptize those who believe it, Disciple them and teach them all the words that I command, I have commanded you. But what about if they're young and they may not truly believe? It's not our responsibility to determine what is in a person's heart. Our responsibility is to baptize them and to disciple them. Baptism isn't something that we do for God. It's not something that we do for God to impress him or we do in front of other people to impress them. Baptism is a response to what we believe God has started in you. It's a sign from God to us. And if someone makes a profession of faith, they will have 
good works. If that faith is sincere, if that profession is sincere, then works will correspond. After Jesus called Paul to preach the gospel of the Jews, he found no good works. They were barren, they were dead. But when he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, there was good fruit. The Jews were driven to hatred because that the Gentiles were now the ones who were heirs of the promise of God. Not these unbelieving Jews. Paul pronounced that the Gentiles were descendants of Abraham because they had the same faith as Abraham. Look at verse 19. Paul says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. You want to know why I'm here? Because they're jealous of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the ones who have made professions of faith. They have been baptized. They have good fruit. They have produced good works that corresponds to saving faith. They are the ones truly saved. These Jews, they are false converts. They have not repented of those sins. They do not produce good fruit. And therefore, they have no allotment with us and all the promises of God. That's why they're mad. The difference between the faith of the Gentiles and the faith of the Jews is that the Gentiles, their faith was true. The Jews' faith were not. Because they had no good fruit that proved their faith in God was sincere. And there will be evidence Are you concerned for your children? There will be evidence. You will see seeds of holiness because that's what we're saved to. We are saved to holiness. Saving faith produces holiness in believers. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see that? We are saved to do good works. Those who are saved by grace through faith will produce good works because that has... That is how God ordered it. We are saved and we produce good fruit. The last thing I want to say this morning before we transition to the Lord's Supper is I want to say a warning to you. And this is a very important warning. For the last 40 minutes, we've talked about faith, saving faith. We are not saved by our faith. 
Faith is not the object of our salvation. Christ is the sole object of, excuse me, of our salvation. We are saved by Christ. He's the object. Faith is the instrument. Faith is the instrument that it is used to receive Christ. Faith is not the object of salvation. Christ is. Okay, what's the big deal about that? Huge deal. If we confuse this, if we confuse the object of our salvation, if we replace Christ with faith, we will begin to run into a series of problems. If Christ is replaced by any object, including faith, the problems that we will run into, doubt, we will run into thinking we're not saved, we will begin to feel lost, we will begin to feel helpless. And this is why, because our level of faith varies. Some days and some instances, we will exercise great faith and believe God for many great things. On some days and even throughout the day, we will not exercise great faith. We will have very little faith. And so according to outward circumstances, our faith varies. Sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's weak. That's a reality. And if the object of your salvation is faith, what happens when your faith is weak? The object of your salvation becomes weak. And when you go through periods of faithlessness, and you will, I will, when we go through periods of faithlessness, you will begin to doubt that you're truly saved if you believe the object of your salvation is faith. Jesus is the object of salvation. Now, he does go hand in hand with faith, but there is a natural order. Jesus is the object. Faith is the instrument. Faith should never be the object of our salvation, meaning is that we should never compare our saving faith, our salvation to the strength of our faith. Well, that person can't be saved. Why? Because he hasn't exercised great faith. He's, he's a man of very little faith, so he cannot possibly be saved. That's a problem. And it'll produce a crisis in your heart. Your faith, my faith will fail several times throughout a day. But Jesus is the object of our salvation. And we can never run the risk of not being saved. Because Jesus never fails.
Our faith will fail. Jesus will never fail. So even the weakest of saving faith gets the same strong Christ as the strongest of faith. I hope that encouraged you today. I know we've talked a lot about faith with Paul preaching uh, the Christian faith before uh, wicked men. I just wanted to close our section of Paul appearing before wicked men with that warning and with an encouragement. Be careful that you do not replace Christ as the object of your salvation. Even replacing him with the simple act of faith would be devastating for you. Because if you do that, if faith is the object of your salvation, on days when you have weak faith and your faithlessness, you will begin to doubt whether you are even saved. And since Christ is the object of our salvation, Christ never fails. And the weakest of faith has the same strong Christ as the strongest of faith.